Hey there, I'm Dana, a registered dietitian and registered dietitian exam tutor. And this is my podcast where we go over all of the questions that have been posted to my Facebook page, Registered Dietitian Exam Study Group with Dana over the past week. And we not only chat about the answers, but why are they the answers as well as answer any questions that students have posted on the page throughout the week. This is a weekly podcast, so be sure to tune in each week for new questions. And of course, I would love to see any of you guys at the live version of this on Sunday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern time. Our first practice question tonight is when do we use a histogram over a bar chart? So this student had said that they saw a question where it was saying BMI of middle school students have been collected over the past year. What is the best way to interpret and share this data and why? And they were stuck between bar graph and histogram, right? So if we think about a bar graph and a histogram, I know for me, when I think of that, if you asked me to draw it, I would honestly probably draw the same picture because what was that in, like, not geometry, um, some math class from, like, high school, right? When was the last time you think about that? So this is a great question to ask on the page. And another thing I would say, too, and I posted a picture of it on the Facebook page, but if you're listening to the podcast, definitely just do a Google for histogram versus bar graph. This is when you want to look at a picture because a big issue with like the standard study materials like the genome, there's no pictures. So if you Google a picture, it's really, really helpful. So when we're thinking about a bar graph, I know you guys can all imagine it, that's kind of separated little columns. And then a histogram is it's, you know, the bars are together. So the difference is with a bar graph, you are gonna be using cat for categorical data. So categorical data is things that I think are different categories. You can't necessarily put them in a calculator. So if we were making a bar chart for this Facebook page, right, we could be saying, you know, where do you live would be one. Mine would be, right, oh, I live in Massachusetts. You may live in Kentucky. You might live in Hawaii. And we could see, you know, how many people live in each state. Now, a histogram is going to be for our quantitative data. So think quantity, I'm counting it. So this would be what was your score on your last RD exam. So we'd have, you know, all the different numbers, right? But they would kind of, the bar chart would be, the little bars would be next to each other. So our summary of this is for our bar chart, this is going to be our categorical or qualitative data. You're kind of putting the different categories on the x-axis, the bars do not touch. For a histogram, it is going to be our quantitative, right, numbers, think you can put it in a calculator data, and the bars will touch. So that would be for our RD exam scores. So really great question. Here's another one we have from Caitlin. So she's a, a cafeteria is in its fourth week of service. Which of the following would be the best way to forecast appropriate changes to the cafeteria menu and production practices. And the key word in this question is the forecasting, right? When we're thinking about forecasting, it's, you know, what do I need to buy? What should I expect? Like, I think the weather forecast, right? Like Boston this week, the weather forecast is, of course, snow again, because it's the winter, right? But it's like, what should I expect? And when we're doing food service, when we're hearing forecasting, it's what should I expect in sales, amount of customers coming. So here are our options. We have A, profit margins, 
B, benchmarking, C, daily sales records, or D, customer focus group. And the student who asked the question and a lot of you guys in the comments too were stuck between, well, you know, is it daily sales records or is it customer focus groups? And so customer focus groups is definitely a good guess. I would say, you know, that would be kind of like the last one I'd want to eliminate. But the reason why it's C, the daily sales records, is because I'm asking myself, well, which of these things is going to be helpful for me to forecast, to predict what people are going to do? And one of the best things to look at is your historical data. Now, is it not invaluable to also know what your customers want and ask them, right? A focus group, we're kind of going around being like, what do you think of the Taco Tuesday? You know, all these different things. No, but it doesn't necessarily translate into sales. In a tutoring example that I'll give you guys, as you'll see on, on the Facebook page, every once in a while, right, I'll comment, okay, well, what do people want? You know, what topics do they want coming up, you know, for the Wednesday group? And so I'll have all sorts of people, right, who are saying, I want to come to research, I want to come to practice question, I want to do this, but I know, right, regardless of who answers, you know, that's not necessarily a focus group, it's a questionnaire, but like, regardless, let's say if 40 people answer the questionnaire and 20 people say, I want to come to research, I know from historical data that the most popular classes are practice question classes. So my daily sales records for like the tutoring would be historical data saying, wow, a lot of when I have a practice question class, a lot more people are going to come because it's more applicable. Versus if I have just a topic class, even though, right, there's going to be people who want to come to it, it's going to be a smaller amount of people because there's always going to be the people, right, who voted but won't come. Maybe they want to grab the recording, right? And then there's going to be the people who, you know, actually want to come from it. But it would be better for me to use my sales data to say, okay, well, what do I know from historical data? This is what people do. So difference, right, between what people say they want and where do they actually put their money. So always best to go off your sales data. Um, another topic that kind of goes with this that you'll see in domain three is popularity index, where with popularity index, we're saying, okay, let's look at the, you know, calculate our total items sold on one day. Put your item of interest over it. So like, let's say we sold 100 items, 30 of them were hot dogs. There'd be a 30% popularity index for our hot dogs there. All right. Next up, we got a, um, one on um, anorexia nervosa. So this one is one from me. I said, a patient was just admitted to your unit with a diagnosis of anorexia nervosa. What? is one of the immediate concerns for this patient. Most importantly, I put why. And you guys will see on the Facebook page, I'm often asking why. Because I don't want you to just get a question right because you know kind of surface level. You're gonna learn best when you can think of the why because that's gonna allow you to answer a similar question when it's worded a little bit differently. So we have our patient with anorexia nervosa, right, which we, Commonly are just calling anorexia, but one thing you want to be careful of in the exam and on clinical practice is anorexia means lack of appetite. So I write that in my notes for my oncology patients 
all of the time. I'll say, you know, patient presents with anorexia because I'm saying patient presents with lack of appetite. So just watch that on the exam. You don't want to get a question wrong because you're thinking like anorexia nervosa with just anorexia. So anorexia nervosa is the eating disorder where you're restricting intake. There's a very big fear of gaining weight. So here are options. Increase calorie needs by approximately 100 to 300 calories a day. Increase fluid intake. Um, place consult requests for inpatient behavioral therapists or correct electrolyte imbalances. And this type of question is hard because if you're reading it and saying, well, what's something appropriate to do? All of these are appropriate to do. So when you're getting a question like this, you want to be thinking, I can do all of these things, but what would be the number one thing to do? You also see this type of question with like, which patient should you like check an A1C on? You know, so here you want to think of, you have the patient in front of you and they're like, Dana, we can only do one thing in the next hour, right? And going, okay, well, which one's the most important? So let's go through them again. So we have increased calorie needs by approximately 100 to 300 calories. Now, this is a great way to feed our anorexic patients, right? I do want to make sure I'm slowly, slowly increasing the calories because right? If they're anorexic, they're at risk for refeeding. I do not want to overload their body. So this is definitely something I would do. I don't know if it's the very first thing. So let me kind of put that in my like maybe category. Okay. The next one, increased fluid intake. Is this patient probably dehydrated, right? If they've been restricting a lot of intake, a lot of time we see patients with anorexia nervosa also restricting fluid intake because right, Water has mass, and so if you're dehydrated, you're lighter. So this one is probably something they need, but I wouldn't put it in like my maybe and definitely category. I'd, I'd say, okay, that's not the, a big priority when they come in. Important, but not like a huge thing. Okay, next we have consult um, the inpatient behavioral therapist. So this one is definitely something I would want to make sure we do, right? Anorexia nervosa is the most deadly psychiatric condition. So 100%, definitely. And then the next one I have correct electrolyte balance. So this one is actually the answer, but you might not spring on it right away because this is one where it's worded differently, right? So I know if this said, you know, correct, you know, potassium, magnesium, phosphorus for refeeding, right, you guys would jump on it. But it's kind of hidden, right? It's saying collect a correct electrolyte balance. So our electrolytes, right? Key ones we're thinking with our anorexic and malnourished patients are magnesium, potassium, phosphorus, because we're worried about refeeding. So this would be the number one thing I would do because if we have the patient, they're admitted to the unit, and they're admitted to the unit, what we're thinking is this is posing the most immediate threat to them. With refeeding, what we want to be thinking of is besides going, oh, it should be, you know, magnesium, potassium, phosphorus, we want to really think about the why, what's the concern, right? So what we're saying with these patients is their magnesium, potassium, phosphorus are depleted. They're not really eating anything, but I need magnesium, potassium, phosphorus to have glucose metabolism. And we want to think about, well, where is it involved in glucose metabolism? And definitely 
If you're not a fan of glucose metabolism, definitely check out the new biochem class. It's up on the website as the recorded version. It was a really fun class last week. Um, but what you want to think is, okay, my potassium, my, I need that for the sodium-potassium pump to get glucose in the cell. My magnesium, I need to stabilize the reaction from glucose to glucose 6-phosphate. And then my, my phosphorus, right, is the P in ATP, adenosine triphosphate. Now, besides using potassium for the sodium-potassium pump, thinking about it from the lens of glucose, we also use the sodium-potassium pump to have our electrical gradient for your heartbeat. So if I do not have enough potassium in my body and I feed my patient and it gets even lower in their blood from the refeeding, you can have cardiac arrest. So think potassium, the elemental letter is K, think K for kills. It's going to kill you first, which is what makes anorexia nervosa so dangerous because your heart can stop, right? You can have cardiac death. And so that's a really, really big concern with this patient. So if they're on your floor and they're like, okay, Dana, you know, what do you want to do? Should we start tube feed, give her an Ensure? Should I give her some IV fluid? Should I, should I consult the therapist? I'm going to be saying, has anyone checked her labs? Let's check these. And then we can kind of go on to the next thing. Next one is a question from me, a little vocabulary. And if you've taken any of my domain three classes, you'll hear me say again and again, domain three is almost all vocab plus math, which I know you guys is your other favorite topic, right? So this one, what's the difference between a manager and a leader? And I have a lot of students who get stuck on this because the way that domain three is set up is management and leadership and all the theories are really, really mixed. There's a lot of overlap. And so I want to give you guys an example so you can kind of think back to this when you're getting the question of manager versus leader. So if we have a situation where someone has to be fired, and also keep in mind with this, ideally your manager would be a leader, but they're not, you know, they don't have to be the same person. You can be a leader without being a manager. So let's say someone has to be fired and they're like, okay, Dana, you got to fire someone. And I'm just a manager, right? The manager's kind of taking things by the book, going to get things done, can, you know, handle a difficult situation. So manager Dana is going to be like, okay, Lindsay, you are fired. Here's the protocol. Here's this. Sign this. Get out. Now, leader Dana is going to be saying, okay, so you're telling me you have to fire someone and they're going to try to problem solve it a little bit. They're going to say, okay, like, is there any way we can keep Lindsay? Is there any way that we could keep her? Could someone reduce their hours? Could she reduce her hours? Could I take a peek at, like, what's going on? And if the answer is, nope, we really need to fire Lindsay, the next question they would be doing is, like, okay, well, let me help them. Let me get them through this, too, not just, like, slam the door in their face. So the leader is who you want to hang on to when there's changes. They're kind of having that entrepreneur, that thinking. They're, you know, when there's a crisis, you're kind of holding on to them because they're going to be like, okay, we got this. It's going to be tough. We're going to get through it. First, your manager's like checking boxes. I'm like, okay, fired, Lindsay. Okay, on to the next thing. So ideally, they're together, but your leader is kind of your lighthouse in the storm. You want to go to them. They're going to help you. Your manager is like, not my job. Let me just kind of keep checking these boxes too. 
Next question we have, a community nutritionist can best elicit opinions onto why a particular nutrition program is not working by doing what? And this one got a lot of people stuck. So we have A, forming a focus group. B, examining the results of a pre and post test. C, sharing the problems with similar agencies. Or D, redefining the target population. And so here, a lot of people got confused with, you know, maybe it's the pre-post test. Maybe they have to redefine the target population because anytime we're seeing community, a lot of the time we're like, oh my God, they're always asking us about the target market or community needs assessment. And so what you want to think with this is you want to go back to the question and be like, what is going on, right? So we're saying, okay, the community nutritionist wants to get opinions on why the group is not working here. And so we want to be thinking about, okay, well, what would each of these things tell us, right? So a focus group would allow us to kind of be saying like, hey, you know, like, let's say we're doing like a breastfeeding workshop that's trying to get more women to breastfeed in the community. And per our question, it's going terribly. But our focus group, we could say, you know, why aren't you coming? Why aren't you finding it helpful? Is there something that would be more helpful? And, you know, it would allow them to be like, oh, well, Wednesdays is really tough. We usually have Bible study or it's really late this time. I would prefer a morning time or, you know, most of us speak Spanish. We want to hear it in this. So the focus group, which is the answer, would be really great on kind of getting data about why it's not working. Now, the other one that people put was B, examining the results of the pre or post test. So examining the results of the pre and post test would not be helpful because here we already know it's not working, right? The pre and post test or our formative and summative evaluation would be helpful to answer the question of, is it working? But we already know it's not. So that one would be out. Um, C, sharing the problem with similar agencies. This would definitely be a great next step after a focus group of being like, hey, you know, is anyone having something similar? Um, and then D, redefining the target population. Well, you know, that one, again, wouldn't get to the question of why is this program not working, right? You might find from your focus group that people are like, well, oh, I didn't know that this focus group, I'm not the focus group, the breastfeeding class existed. I didn't know what it was, you know. And we have to make our ads a little bit more targeted to that population. But the best thing would be to do a focus group so we could really be like, what's going on? Tell me, too. Okay. Next question we had was just some vocab, too, on talking about our nutrition-focused physical exam. And think about, well, what's the difference between palpation, percussion, and then our um, acoustication, right, kind of listening so the ones we're using most often in our exam are our palpation, where we're kind of feeling. So like this would be kind of feeling like the temporal wasting, you know, um, you know, or like if it was like I work in oncology, so like feeling for tumors, things like that. Now, percussion is when you're tapping. So like... I mean, I'm not usually using percussion. I feel like my nurses do when they are like talking about like abdominal distension. So like tapping. So like I think when I hear percussion, I think like percussion drums, you know. 
Um, and then our listening would be more like thinking like with a, with a stethoscope too. Next question I said, what is an example of patient autonomy when it comes to oncology patients? And this question came from, because I asked in the Facebook group, what are you working on? And I love to hear what you guys are working on so I can help kind of tailor classes and questions to it. So we first want to be thinking about, well, what are, you know, what are kind of the differences between, you know, the different types of medical ethics? And this is falling within our standards of professional practice. So autonomy is saying that the patient has the ability to choose what they want to be doing. You know, benevolence is the next one. And that's saying we're always trying to do, you know, the right thing, provide care for our patient. Our non-malefensence, you want to think about like avoiding harm. And then our justice is kind of doing the right thing. And they all really go together. So with patient autonomy, and we're saying, well, what would be an example of this with our oncology patients? Having autonomy would look like, you know, your doctor's respecting your decision to say, I don't want chemo. I don't really want radiation. I want to, you know, do some natural, you know, some natural medicines. So that would be the autonomy of I can make the choice. If I'm kind of thinking about the benevolence, you know, with this too, with the benevolence, an example of that would be saying, okay, like even if my patient's like, I don't want chemo, I don't want radiation, that I'm still there to help them, right? Like I'm like, okay, let's still work together. Non-maleficence would look like, even if they're like, I want to just work with supplements, I don't want any of this. And I'm saying, okay, but that if there was a risk to them, if I'm like, oh, they want to be trying, you know, like black Cornish or one of the supplements that we know is not, you know, has a lot of side effects that I would be telling them like, you can do that, right? I'm respecting your autonomy, but you know, I really want to make you aware of these side effects of these concerns, um, of these concerns too. So definitely some good vocab to know there. Um, next one I said, when baking at high altitudes, and I feel like this tends to be one of the ones I have a lot of students get asked about in terms of food science. So when baking at high altitudes, atmospheric pressure is reduced, right? When, when I think about atmospheric pressure, I think of like the pressure getting pushed down on you. Um, I said, what are the necessary adjustments to correct this? So one of the things you want to be thinking about, if I'm having less pressure on you know, my cooking on myself, right? There's less pressure up there, which is like why it sometimes gets hard to breathe if you go up to like Colorado or something. So if there's less pressure, water's going to boil faster, which means liquid is going to evaporate faster. So one of the big changes is that you need to be adding a little bit more liquid because it's going to dry out quicker. The other thing you remember is if there's less pressure, right, then it's going to be easier for like my cakes to rise. So when I'm having, I'm cooking at high altitudes, I also want to make sure I'm decreasing my leavening agent because it's going to be able to expand faster. You're not going to be having, you're not going to be having as much kind of pressure um, too. It's also going to take, when we're thinking about like boiling, it's going to take less time to boil because there's less of that atmospheric pressure as well.
Thanks for tuning in for this week's practice question review. Don't forget that we are doing these live on my Facebook page, Registered Dietitian Exam Tutoring with Dana RD, every Sunday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, and I would love to have you join live. You can also head to my website, danajfnutrition.com, to find out about the latest classes as well as study tips and services. Thanks for tuning in.